you would turn to the book of 1 Timothy, we'll be in chapter 5 today. Welcome, we're glad uh, that you are here. There's some folks here that I don't know, and if that's the case, I'd love to meet you uh, afterwards. The, uh, my name's Dave Silvernow, I'm the pastor here, and we are going through the books of First and Second Timothy this fall. And today we're in First Timothy chapter 5, just going a little bit into chapter 6. And it's a long passage, and time is short, so we'll read it as we go along. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to Paul's first letter to Timothy this morning to learn more about how we should be treating each other and about the need for honor. And Lord, we just don't think about this very often. And we surely don't want to admit that sometimes we don't treat people very well. So Lord, once again, teach us what to do, teach us what to say, teach us what to believe, teach us how to live. Build our faith, draw us near, and help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle Paul this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I have never been a huge fan of all the um, constant awards shows, like the Oscars or the Golden Globes, but... I've seen them enough that I know the general format. An entertainer is called to the front to receive their award and give a short speech. And at some point in the speech, it's customary to include a list of all the people who have helped them achieve the award that's now in their hands. And those are the moments when people recognize that their success is dependent on the work others did on their behalf for their benefit. And even though I'm not a huge fan of those shows, I couldn't help but wonder if that would be a good practice for us to engage in. Most of us are willing to praise God for his saving work in our lives, but are we fully aware of the people through whom he accomplished that work? Can we readily recognize the faithful disciples who built up our faith through uh, preaching and teaching and praying and serving Think about it. Who would make your list of people you need to thank for their part in your spiritual growth? In our text today, Paul instructs Timothy and the elders of the church, the church in Ephesus as a whole, and our church today to honor those men and women who faithfully lead others in the way of Jesus. Every one of us can point to at least one person who has led us into a deeper faith in Christ. And in Paul's words, they are worthy of great honor. And there, there's all kinds of ways to show honor. You can write an encouraging note detailing how important their ministry has been in your life. You can pray for them and their families and let them know that you're doing so. You know what encourages me? Um, it, it's not when you say good sermon, Pastor, though I do appreciate that. But each week, whether it's me or Frank preaching, we get an email from Cece that tells us what she learned from the sermon, what stood out to her, what was convicting, what was new to her, and sometimes what she didn't get. It's short, but that kind of faithful feedback is tremendously encouraging. And hey, at a minimum, 
I know that at least one person was paying attention. That said, it's important to remember also that those who lead, whether it be worship leaders or teachers or administrators or deacons, elders, pastors, any other sort of church leader, are not without their faults and flaws. Like everyone else, they're in constant need of grace. Their rhythm of life is the same as yours, one of faith and repentance. A good leader is not one without sin, because there's only one without sin, and that's Jesus. The good leader is the one who's worthy of honor, because having sinned, they humbly confess and faithfully repent and prayerfully seek reconciliation if they've wounded anyone. And those are the ones that we look up to. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So let us take up Paul's challenge today and seek to honor our spiritual mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers through their faithful service to Christ, our lives have been forever changed. Even as we glorify the God of our salvation, let us remember the ones who taught us and loved us and walked with us from the beginning until now. They are worthy of honor. And that's Paul's message to us from 1 Timothy 5. So let's turn there now. He starts by telling us to treat the family with honor. And if you have the sermon outline, that's the first blank. Uh, there, treat the family with honor. Although Timothy's a relatively young man, he has now found himself as a pastor responsible for a congregation that, like most congregations like this one, is mixed both in sex, men and women, and in age, old and young. And now Paul tells him that those characteristics, both sex and age, should determine what his relationship to the people should look like. He says, starting at the beginning, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So, let's take the older people first. Paul seems to assume that it will be Timothy's duty to admonish someone older than himself. He has to do it, but he should do it as an exhortation, not as a harsh rebuke. Timothy is to give senior members of the church the respect due to age and the affection due to parents. He's to treat the older men as fathers, and he's to encourage them. And the same goes for the older women who are to be treated as mothers. And while it is true that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ... To be honest, it still feels strange sometimes when students and young adults breeze up to me and call me by my first name, even though I'm old enough to be their grandfather. Here I think uh, that perhaps Asian and African cultures are wiser, since many of them encourage young people to address the older generation as aunt and uncle, even if they're not related, because it has an inherent respect built in. Now, most people here call me Dr. Dave, and it's actually how I sign most of the weekly emails and pastoral letters I send, and I much prefer that, especially to just using a last name, which I find inherently disrespectful. We have one guy in our presbytery who actually goes by his last name, 
and I just can't bring myself to call him that. I think I'm the only guy in the presbytery that uses his first name. Paul also advises Timothy about relationships with people of his own generation. He's to treat younger men like brothers, loving them, not condescending to them. Younger women like sisters, loving them with sensible restraint and absolute purity. And so in brief, the local church is rightly called the church family, in which there are fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, not to mention aunts and uncles, grandparents and children. And leaders are insensitive if they try to treat everybody exactly the same. They have to behave toward their elders with respect and affection and gentleness, their own generation with equality, the opposite sex with purity, all ages of both sexes with the love that binds together members of the same family. But Paul is not just teaching good manners here. I think he's setting the stage for the rest of the chapter, which will deal with widows, elders, and servants. So let's look at the following chart. I have a chart that should be coming up. There it is. So the church is a family uh, uh, with family relationships, and the rest of the chapter breaks out that way, honoring older women as mothers, who are called the widows, honoring younger women as sisters, who refer to the younger widows, honoring the older men as fathers, who are the elders, and honoring the younger men as brothers, the masters, and servants. So when you first read this text, it seems as if Paul is writing about some kind of random topics. It's hard to see how it ties together. And I don't think that's the case. I think he's addressing practical issues that confront the church both then and now. And he sets the stage by calling them family matters, which means that whomever you're dealing with, good or bad, young or old, men or women, even people in authority, you deal with them as members of the family. In this case, the church family. You can close the slide. And there's a lot of practical wisdom here uh, for those called to leadership, especially for younger people who are given responsibility beyond their years. And so, so far as we've gone through Timothy, we've seen if they set an example, become a model of godliness, they identify their authority, submitting to Scripture, drawing all their teaching from it, they exercise their gifts, giving evidence of God's call and of the rightness of the church's commissioning of them, if they show their progress, letting it be seen in their life and that, that their ministry is dynamic, not static. If they're consistent in faith, they practice what they preach. And if they adjust their relationships, being sensitive to everyone's sort of season of life, then he says the other people are not going to despise their youth, but gladly and gratefully receive their ministry. And that's not just true for pastors. I believe it's true for every single member of the church. Since the Apostle Peter teaches us about the priesthood of all believers, remember he's writing to everyone in the church, that means we all have a pastoral role. First Peter 2, he says, As you come to him, meaning Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Likewise, the Apostle Paul has already communicated that to this church in Ephesians 2.22. He said, 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Therefore, since we're being built into a spiritual house, a dwelling place for God, how are we to treat one another? Now, the other day in the weekly email that I sent out, uh, which hopefully you get, if you don't, let us know. Um, Paul call, I, I said that Paul calls Timothy to be a person who honors others. And by so doing, he will be setting an example of godliness for everyone else in the church with the goal that each of us will, from Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. And that means you can honor people, even those that you don't know well, or even someone for whom you have little affection. Honoring them starts to correct that. Honoring one another helps us to get to know them better and to have a greater affection for them. Honoring someone is treating them with your words and actions as worthy of your service as a member of the family. Now, they may not actually be worthy of honor, but you can give it anyways. Some honoring means treating people better than they deserve, regarding them as worthy of honor, not because they deserve it, but because of the honor of Christ. You count them worthy the way God counts you righteous. That doesn't mean you don't see their faults, but you act and speak in such a way as to honor them. So the big question is, how do we do that? And that's what Paul's going to teach us in the rest of the passage. He starts by admonishing us to treat the widows with honor, to treat the widows with honor, starting at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. She has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, in Scripture, widows and orphans, uh, who are people without husbands or parents or homes, are valued for who they are in and of themselves and are said to deserve special honor, protection, and care. Throughout the Bible, justice and love are demanded for them. 
The early church learned this teaching from the Old Testament as well as from the example of Jesus. And therefore, they're to show the same concern. And here the context makes it clear that the honor due to widows must go beyond uh, personal respect and emotional support to financial provision. But who's responsible for the financial care of widows? And which widows qualify for such support? Paul addresses these questions because evidently uh, the local church there was maintaining some widows who should have been supported by their families. And the church's financial support should be limited to widows who are, it's an interesting phrase, verses 3, 5, and 16, truly widows, meaning those who are really in need. Such a widow is destitute, unable to support herself, and that time meaning having no dowry to support her and no relatives to take care of her. And so it makes that clear that it has to be someone who doesn't have the other means of support. However, we read verse 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Two motives are given why family members do this first. First, it's a way of repaying parents and grandparents who cared for them when they were young. And notice the command to honor widows is extended to grandchildren. Kids, pay attention. The Apostle Paul isn't letting you off the hook here. Second, Paul says it's pleasing in the sight of God. The God who in Scripture both commands us to honor our parents and declares his own concern for widows. Now, totally different uh, from such a godly woman is a widow who lives for pleasure. Verse 6 says, who is self-indulgent. Means she's living for herself rather than God. Therefore, she is dead even while she lives. So one kind of life, self-indulgence, is in reality spiritual death. Well, one kind of death, self-denial, is in reality spiritual life. So there's material and spiritual conditions for the church's care of widows. The material condition is great need. The spiritual condition is godliness. And he says, command these things as well. Give the people these instructions, because the care of widows is a whole church responsibility, not just a personal ministry of Timothy. So let me ask you, do you know who the widows in our church are? There are seven of them. Can you name them? And if you add the widowers and the older single women and those who are spiritually single, whose spouses don't come with them, We've more than doubled the number. Can you make a list of those folks? You know who has a list? The deacons. Every month the deacons meet, and one of their first orders of business is to go over that list of names. And their list includes all the older folks in the church, and since they haven't added me yet, that means that old is older than me. And I'm not asking to be added, looking for the deacons here. Get that. Um, And their list also includes all the single women in the church, too, even if they're younger. Now, community groups are meeting this week. Many of them are meeting today. 
And if you look on the community group study guide, your assignment is to make a list. Widows, widowers, older single women, and spiritual singles. And if one or more of them is in your community group, your biblical obligation is to love and care for them. And if your group doesn't have any, pick one from your list and then go out of your way to love and care for them this month because our text says, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And if you're not sure how to serve them, watch them. Because some of the most engaged servants in our church are the widows and older singles. They are the ones setting the example of how to love and care for others. Let me give you an example. Iris Dillard is one of our widows as well as the oldest member of our church. And life has gotten much more difficult for her. But I remember one time, a number of years ago, she was asking my advice on leading a Bible study at the senior center here in town. And so I asked her why she did it. And she said, and you have to hear Iris's voice for those of you that know her. She said, well, you know, those old people need the word of God too. And I just smiled because she was older than all of the old people she was ministering to. Just one example, and I could go on a long list. But before we go there, I hadn't sort of made that point. Our job is to love and care as a church. But Paul then repeats with an even stronger emphasis what he's written about families shouldering their own responsibilities. Verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is strong language. But nature itself teaches us that children should care for parents. And most non-Christian cultures, even most pagans, by the light of nature, they do that. Provision for widows had been incorporated into Roman law. Are we who have the word of God to despise those that even pagans honor? No. Finally, Paul gives Timothy a different set of instructions for younger widows, primarily for two reasons. The first, the younger women would naturally want to remarry, and he encourages them to do that. And the second is, then they have to focus on serving families and not the church. And although Paul personally expressed his preference for singleness, he acknowledged that each person has his or her own gift from God. That includes whether to marry or not to marry. And he recognizes that single people are free to become more involved in the affairs of the Lord, while married people tend to become more preoccupied with the affairs of home and work. He's not saying that's a bad thing. That's just life. But out of all these instructions, I think there's two principles of helping others that kind of come out of all these. And I think our deacons actually follow these pretty well, and I want to commend them. The first is the principle of discernment. There's no general handout to all widows, regardless of circumstances. The church's provision is limited to those who are in genuine need. And if there's any alternative uh, means of support, that should be used. In particular, first calls always on the family. The church's sense of responsibility 
should not encourage irresponsibility on the part of others. So just because the church is willing to help, it doesn't mean that others shouldn't help. Second, there's the principle of dignity. Ideally health permitting, the supported widows and the serving widows are the same people. Widows, along with anyone in a similar circumstance, should have the opportunity both to receive according to their need and to give according to their ability. And that is both to be served and to serve. And Christian relief or charity or support should never demean its beneficiaries, but rather should increase their sense of dignity. Again, I think our deacons do both very well. So that's a lot about taking care of people, but Paul's not done yet, because next he tells us to treat the elders with honor, starting at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages." Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. For as those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. This is very interesting. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, so you know the next thing he says is going to be really important. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You're off the hook from Sunday school. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those uh, that are not cannot remain hidden. Sometimes we think that those who are in full-time ministry need the appreciation only of the chief shepherd and not of the people around them. And Paul has a different opinion. He says all people are prone to discouragement and need affirmation. So he says the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And all your elders do. What kind of honor does Paul have in mind? Well, from verse 18, it's clear it includes uh, adequate compensation, yet it seems unlikely that he's referring just to pay. He's primarily referring to respect and honor. He sort of takes it for granted that at least the pastorate is a paid ministry. As in Old Testament days, the priests were supposed to devote themselves to the Lord's service, and so they were supported. New Testament days, pastors are supported so they can devote themselves uh, to the work of um, the gospel. Now, Paul's purpose in employing these models is to emphasize that the elder service is one hard work, and that if it's performed well, it deserves to be honored. Godly work is to be appreciated. That's sort of a universal principle for the church. But then he turns to a different situation and asks the question essentially, what about ungodly work? He turns from leaders who deserve appreciation to bad ones who may deserve a rebuke. And the situation imagined is one in where a complaint or a charge is made to Timothy about an elder. And Paul gives them two directions. First, um, when the elder is accused of something. And second, when he's found guilty. So first, 
Accusation has to be substantiated by several people. In the Old Testament, two or three witnesses were required. Same principle applies, particularly when it's leaders being accused. Indeed, two or three witnesses are required not only before an accusation is sustained, but before it's entertained at all. And this is necessary for the protection of elders who are vulnerable to slander. A smear campaign can just ruin a ministry. So Paul's first word to Timothy is he must never listen to gossip about leaders or even to an accusation if it's only made by one person. Every charge has to be substantiated by several people before it's considered. Now, many years ago, uh, someone who, people who are no longer here, we had an elder share a testimony before the church which included a confession of sin and a request for prayer. And uh, afterwards, a member of the church approached me out in the lobby and wanted to file charges against that elder. Now, the process for confronting sin is governed by Matthew 18. And if it's against an elder, then this passage applies as well. And so I asked this person if the conditions of the, those two passages, Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5, had been met. And they said no. But they wanted to come to the session and file charges anyway. And I said no. That they would have to follow the biblical process. And once that was done, then they could come before the session and follow charges. But they had to follow the biblical process first. And after they finished yelling at me, they walked out that door and never came back. These safeguards are in place because look at the results. If an accusation comes against an elder and it's considered, it's substantiated by several people, and the elders make a decision that the accusation is proved and they somehow admonish or discipline that elder, say he refuses to repent, continues in that sin, then the sadness and the scandal of a public showdown cannot be avoided. Because verse 20 says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. So Paul is issuing a charge to Timothy that's couched in the most solemn of terms. It has two negatives here. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. The first is to act without jumping to conclusions of either guilt or innocence. And the second is do nothing out of favoritism. Elders are to get no special treatment from the other elders. But then he goes on, what about leaders who are outside of the church family? Maybe they're inside, but something's going on out there, not in here. And Paul says we treat them the same way. We're to treat other authorities with honor. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service our believers and beloved teach and urge these things. So in these verses, the bond servants that Timothy 
is to instruct are clearly Christians. Whereas in verse 2, we're explicitly told the master is a believer. In verse 1, it seems likely that he's not. So Timothy has to adjust his teaching to the context. Now, first of all, the word bondservants is referring to essentially a form of slavery known as indentured servitude, where people sign themselves over to another person, a master, either for pay or to pay off a debt. And these contracts are actually for a period of time, usually five to ten years. Now, in Roman, the Roman world at the time, bond servants were considered essential workers. They were domestic servants, they were uh, farm laborers, but also clerks and craftsmen and teachers and soldiers and managers. So to dismantle this system of indentured servitude uh, all at once would probably have brought about the collapse of society. Now, this is very different than chattel slavery, such as existed in the American South, which involved permanent ownership and diminished personhood. Now, that also existed in Rome, but in much smaller numbers. Though history records the further one got away from Rome, the worse the slavery situation became. And while indentured servitude is a dehumanizing system, Chattel slavery is far, far worse and should be abhorred by all Christians. So, back to the text. What does Paul say here? He says, bond servants should regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That is, they're to treat them with respect because they are human beings made in the image of God. We often apply that to those who are less fortunate to ourselves or to people who are caught up in some sort of heinous sin, we have to remind ourselves they're people made in the image of God. But it also applies to those who are more fortunate than us, even when they are caught up in some sort of heinous sin. From the beggar to the boardroom, everyone needs the gospel. Second, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Evidently, some were guilty of this type of twisted reasoning and were trying to take advantage of their master's Christian faith. And Paul says, oh no, on the contrary, because they're fellow believers, you must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The family relationship that unites them in Christ, far from being an excuse for neglect, is a stimulus to serve. And of course, the most Direct application to our society today would be that of employer and employee. Simply put, Christians should be the best employers and the best employees. So all of that are the family matters according to the Apostle Paul. Treating others by serving them, treating authorities with honor, affirming and appreciating the work of elders and deacons, and overall treating the people of the church as family. Why is all of this so important to Paul? Because at its very core, treating the church family with honor serves as a portrait of the gospel. The family provides a profoundly personal picture of our salvation. When we're saved, God adopts us. He makes us his sons and daughters. God referred to Israel as his firstborn son, Exodus 4, so the people of Israel were encouraged to sing about God's fatherly compassion, Psalm 103. 
But Israel just mostly pointed ahead to Christ, the true son. And the good news for us is that Christ came to see to our adoption and to make us fellow heirs with him. We see that in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And the perfect son is not ashamed to call us brothers, Hebrews 2. He taught us, all of his disciples, to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, Matthew 6. Reminded us not to be anxious about food or clothes because, again, Matthew 6, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He promised us that his Father would not abandon us as orphans, John 14. And in response to all this good news, the Apostle John couldn't help but bubble over with wonder. In 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. And we should share John's wonder. For parent-child relationships are no accident, nor a small part of God's plan. We heard a long prayer about that earlier. They're designed to teach us by analogy of our relationship to God, our true Father, which we receive in Christ. The great Anglican theologian, Dr. J.I. Packer, Extremely humble person. He puts the point even more strongly. This is from his book, Knowing God. If you haven't read it, it is the number one book I recommend uh, to people. He writes, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to being merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And in the end, the Apostle Paul's prayer, both for Timothy, for us, for the church in Ephesus, for our church, is that God will qualify us to share in the inheritance of the Son. See at Colossians 1, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Because God is our Father, and the church is our family. Therefore, we're to honor the older women as mothers. We honor the younger women as sisters. We honor the older men as fathers. We honor the younger men as brothers, which once again means that whomever you're dealing with, good or bad, young or old, men or women, even people in authority, you treat them as members of the family. You should thank God for that. Do that now, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. 
We confess there are times when we fail to see your work in our lives. And there are times when we fail to see your work in the lives of others. And there are times when we much rather pursue honor than show it to someone else. So thank you for the one who welcomes people like us into the family, people who don't deserve it. Thank you for the one who bears all our sins on the cross, the one who redeems us by his blood shed for many for the remission of sins, turning his curse into our blessing for the salvation of our souls. Help us who have fled for refuge to the cross so that we might hold fast to the hope set before us and work in each of us this fall as we learn how to love each other as family and how to outdo one another in showing honor. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word. And through these words from Paul to Timothy, draw us ever closer to the one who displays them perfectly. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.